encryption debate walks into a bar, who's happy with the Equifax settlement, and the latest findings of the annual IBM Ponemon Institute cost of a data breach report. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. This week, US Attorney General William Barr made his sentiments known on the subject of strong encryption and its impact on law enforcement at a conference held in New York. With the story, is ISMG's Managing Editor, Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk. The top law enforcement official in the U.S. advocated earlier this week that encrypted content is posing a public safety danger. Attorney General William Barr says that irresponsible encryption is leaving a mounting number of victims. Barr spoke at Fordham University's International Conference on Cybersecurity in New York. At conferences like this, we talk about these costs in abstract terms, but they are not abstract. They're real. The cost of irresponsible encryption that blocks legitimate law enforcement access is ultimately measured in a mounting number of victims, men, women, and children, who are the victims of crimes, crimes that could have been prevented if law enforcement had been given lawful access to encrypted evidence. Barr's remarks extend what has been the U.S. government's longstanding position on encryption, The FBI and law enforcement agencies contend that end-to-end encryption systems have locked up potential evidence that could be used to fight terrorism, drug trafficking, and sexual predators. It's been the goal of the government for decades to be able to have an easy way to defeat the encryption technology, and it started back in the 90s. Barr's comments drew criticism from Matt Blaze, who's a professor in the computer science department at Georgetown. In 1994, Blaze discovered a flaw within the so-called Clipper chip, which was a U.S. government plan to allow for law enforcement access to encrypted content. The system was abandoned about two years later after Blaze found vulnerabilities. Blaze wrote on Twitter that Barr's argument that the personal and commercial data protected by encryption isn't all that important and that software security risks aren't that big a deal is so flat earth bizarre that I don't even know where to begin. Indeed, encryption experts have said that it is impossible to design a messaging system that only gives access to the right people while keeping out the bad ones. Nonetheless, the UK and Australia have passed legislation that allows them to put pressure on technology companies to aid in removing protections from encrypted content. End-to-end encryption systems are designed so that a service provider can't access the content. The keys to decrypt the content are held on the sender and recipient's devices. If content is intercepted in transit, it is unreadable. And there are a bevy of end-to-end encrypted messaging applications, including WhatsApp, Signal, and Apple's iMessage. Barr's proposal is to leave it up to technology companies to figure out how to backdoor their apps for the government. Now, the department has made clear what we are seeking. We believe that when technology providers deploy encryption in their products, services, and platforms, they need to maintain an appropriate mechanism for lawful access. This means a way for government entities, when when they have appropriate legal authority, to access, access data securely, promptly, and in an intelligible form whether it is stored on the device or in transmission. 
It's the technical details, however, where the government's idea becomes problematic, experts say. John Callis is the senior technology fellow at the ACLU. He worked on Apple's security team and founded encryption communication companies such as PGP, Silent Circle, and Blackphone. Callis recently refuted an essay in which Britain's spy agency, GCHQ, likened snooping in on encrypted instant messaging conversations as the same as phone tapping with alligator clips in the old days. That ghost user would then be able to have access to conversations. Callis writes that it's virtually impossible to add a ghost user without leaving technical signs to those who are being spied on. Callis writes that, quote, The crocodile metaphor describes a situation where the eavesdropper is not present yet listening in. In reality, that situation breaks down completely, leaving nothing but a nostalgic rhetorical spin. There's a glaring chasm between both sides. Law enforcement's responsibility is to protect the public's safety, and the technology industry's goal is to protect personal data. A sacrifice by either side increases their own risk, which means the end of this debate is far from over. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. The FTC settlement with Equifax for the 2017 data breach may seem sufficiently punitive for the company losing personal information for more than half of American adults. But are they really sufficient compensation for victims that could now experience a lifetime of identity theft risk? With more is ISMG's executive editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz. Who's happy with the proposed Equifax data breach settlement? In 2017, the credit reporting agency lost personally identifiable information for nearly 150 million U.S. adults, in part due to its poor information security oversight, failed patch management practices, poor passwords, and other substandard cybersecurity practices. Mark Begor, who became CEO of Equifax following the breach, says the company has learned its lessons. In April 2018, when I joined Equifax, I made a personal commitment, internally and externally, to building a culture within Equifax where security is part of our DNA and committed that Equifax would be an industry leader around data security. Bigor was testifying in April before a Senate Homeland Security Subcommittee. I'm proud of the leadership, cultural enhancements, and investments that Equifax has made over the past 18 months. We've added experienced senior leaders and board members to enhance our security and technology skill sets. And in 2018 alone, we added close to 1,000 incremental security and IT professionals to our team. Between 2018 and 2020, we are increasing our technology and security spending by 50%, totaling an incremental $1.25 billion. To that investment, add another $575 million. That's the minimum amount that Equifax will pay under a settlement agreement that it has negotiated with federal and many state officials. The agreement stipulates that Equifax would pay a $100 million fine to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, as well as $175 million to 48 states plus Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico with Indiana and Massachusetts 
sitting it out and continuing to pursue their own lawsuits. The proposed settlement agreement would create a $300 million fund to compensate victims, which would rise to $425 million of Equifax money if required to meet all of victims' compensation demands. The fund would be used to offer victims prepaid credit monitoring services, or they could take a $125 million payout instead. It would also provide up to $20,000 in compensation for unreimbursed losses per person, provided they can be documented. The settlement agreement would also resolve a nationwide class action lawsuit against Equifax. The settlement must still be approved by the Federal District Court in the Northern District of Georgia. If it does so, Atlanta-based Equifax's CEO says he expects to begin taking claims by year's end and also expects the $300 million to handle all victims' claims. Many consumer advocates and lawmakers have already railed against the proposed settlement, with one Democratic senator calling it just a drop in the bucket of what Equifax's disregard for privacy could cost American families. Unfortunately, unlike Europe's general data protection regulation, the U.S. lacks a law that would allow regulators to punish outright organizations that violates people's privacy, especially if they fail to secure private data. Instead, we're left with a patchwork. In this case, it involves, in part, the FTC saying that Equifax maintained that it had proper security protections in place and limited who had access to people's personal data. In the wake of the breach and multiple investigations that have been conducted into Equifax's actual security posture, the FTC says the company's statements violated the prohibition against unfair and deceptive practices. In terms of the settlement, numerous questions remain. For starters, the proposal would allow victims to be reimbursed for up to 20 hours of work at $25 per hour for any efforts they undertook when dealing with fraud, identity theft, or other misuse of their personal information that is fairly traceable to the breach. But it's unclear if accessing the fund would require victims to jump through hoops to document unreimbursed losses. Another open question is, who hacked Equifax? As with the breach of the U.S. Office of Personnel Management discovered in 2015, None of the stolen information has ever surfaced on the cybercrime underground, at least that we know. Perhaps the hack of Equifax was the work of an intelligence agency, as many suspect was the case with OPM. If that was the case with Equifax, many aspects of the victim compensation begin to look like farce. Proving that any identity theft could be traced to the breach could be impossible, no matter the stress and hassle that it has caused victims. Aside from the potential $125 payout, what happens to the rest of the $300 million if victims can't claim it all? The FTC says it can still be used for related consumer relief tied to the breach. After that, the remainder goes to the U.S. Treasury. In other words, whatever else breach victims might think of the proposed settlement, they can at least know that Equifax won't be getting any of the money back. But is that enough? Not least for a lifetime of identity theft risk, while the credit reporting giant continues to buy, sell, and profit from victims' personal information. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. For 14 years, the Ponemon Institute has published the Cost of a Data Breach Report, the last nine of which have been sponsored by IBM. Alongside the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, it provides some of the best longitudinal data on how the landscape is shifting over time. The 2019 report was out this week, and I had the pleasure of speaking with the Global Executive Security Advisor with IBM Security, Limor Kassem, on the findings. I asked her, first of all, 
What surprised her about this year's report? Here's Limon. I have to say that every year this report digs into other parts of what the costs are. There are already hundreds of cost factors that go into this. And what surprised me this year uh, was the financial impact that's being felt for years, so a long-tail financial impact of a data breach. It means that while the average of 67% of data breach costs were realized within the first year, uh, just, you know, after the breach, there were almost a third that were accrued in the second and third year. So these things keep accumulating, keep showing up on the bottom line of the company that was affected. And, and even if they thought that were, you know, they were going to see the end of it after they remediated and went back into operational mode, uh, then they're seeing you know, a good chunk of costs come later which could be attributed to the fact that, you know, sometimes there is regulatory fines that are materializing later, maybe even lawsuits, uh, and so class action, things like that, that take longer, and then the company ends up still paying out down down the line. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.